Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. Hey, Sakara Lights. Welcome back to the Sakara Life podcast. Today, we have two very interesting guests for you. We're going to be talking all about food. We've talked a lot about health with different doctors on the show. We've talked about spirit with lots of interesting healers. And today, we're getting more into the culinary side of Sakara. A lot of what we do is focused on nutrition and health and healing the body from the inside out. But what we do also is amazingly delicious and also really good for the planet. Our first guest is Mark Bittman. You probably know Mark Bittman from his more than 20 years as a beloved food writer and op-ed columnist for the New York Times. He's also the author of more than 20 acclaimed books, including the How to Cook Everything series, the award-winning Food Matters, and the New York Times number one bestseller, Eat Vegan Before Six. Mark's groundbreaking 2007 TED Talk, What's Wrong with What We Eat, an expose on the state of the U.S. food system, human health, and climate change has been viewed more than 5 million times. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It's worth the watch. Mark is a foodie, but he's also a passionate food activist. He currently serves as the Special Advisor on Food Policy at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health, where he advocates for simple, healthful, environmentally responsible food. And our second guest is Tyler Ranson, Sakara's own culinary director. She is an amazing chef and also a just lovely person. Can't wait to talk to them both. Let's talk to Mark Bittman. Hi, Mark. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining. We're big fans of your work and of the knowledge and information that you help spread out there around food and food policy. So thank you for joining today. It's great to be here, Whitney. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we love to start our conversations by asking our guests about their personal mission. What would you say your personal mission is here on Earth? Well, in half a sentence, I guess my personal mission would be to get people to take food seriously and not for granted. Obviously, I could expand on that. But, yeah, what does but, that mean? Well, I, we have lost touch with where food comes from and what it is and what it isn't. And I think that, it, that to the extent that we can help people remember that or learn that, we'll be not only helping them improve their diets, but helping agriculture do its work, which is to feed people nutritiously and affordably. And, and those kind of missions, producing food that's affordable, producing food that's nutritious, making that food available to people, minimizing impact on, on the earth, that's what food and agriculture ought to be about. And we've lost sight of that 
largely because of the profit motive and the lack of power that people have. But those things are obviously important, and they're going to become increasingly important with the ongoing public health crisis, with climate change, and and so on. Absolutely. So you started your career being a journalist and a foodie. Can you tell us a little bit about what what that part of your life was like, writing about food? I And then um, we'll get into the activism part a little later. I... Um, Started writing about food because I was cooking. I, I was interested in writing, but I was I was cooking a lot too. And I was young. And when I started writing, no one was really interested in anything I was writing about until I started writing about food. And then suddenly people were. And I don't know whether it was the time or whether I was good at it or whether it was luck or whatever. But I started writing about restaurants and then very soon after that about about cooking and recipes, which is much more interesting to me than restaurants. And then I started traveling a little bit and was lucky enough to get this column at the New York Times. So then I, from that point on, say from 95, 97 on, I could sort of write what I wanted to. So that I did write about food almost exclusively, but in many different ways as things turned out. And what did you want to communicate in those days? Mostly the cooking was doable. I mean, the 70s and 80s were really a slump for cooking and onward. And I think, you know, I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to express that men could cook and men should be cooking, Mm. but also wanted to help people see, and I don't think this is for everyone, but help people see that cooking wasn't only a chore and an obligation. Most people my age grew up in houses where moms cooked and some did it some did it more out of obligation than anything else and and to some extent with with understandable resentment and i think that cooking cooking is something we have to do or many of us have to do we might as well enjoy it and it is enjoyable so i think at the beginning that was my interest was saying cooking is something everybody could do Cooking is something many people should do. Cooking can be enjoyable and should be enjoyable, and you get to eat better. So that was kind of where I was at for the first 20 years or so. I'm really sounding like an old man, but yeah, for the first 20 years or so, that's kind of where I was at. And then was it something that you learned along the way that made your perspective around food shift? Or what what was it that pushed you towards more of an activist stance? Well, part of it was just being in food day in, day out, thinking about it, talking about it, understanding it better, seeing more. As I traveled, I saw, I started by seeing other kitchens and then it was other, say it was cheese making facilities or, but then it became farms. And then it, and then I was more interested in farms and how is this stuff actually happen? And Through the 90s, I would say, it became more and more clear to me that our food system, people say our food system is broken. I could sort of disagree with that because it works to serve some people, just not everybody. But I could see that things were getting worse in food. Food was becoming less nutritious. Food was becoming less diverse. Food was produced in more harmful ways. Food was making people sick. You talked before about 
food is medicine, but food can mm-hmm. also be poison. And we Absolutely. were seeing more and more of that. And I just became increasingly aware of that. And other people were writing more and more about that, not just nutrition, but where's food come from? What is food really about? How is it produced? Could we produce it better? The whole organic movement. And that started to resonate with me. And by 2000, 20 years ago now, I would say that started to become a main focus of how I was thinking. Yeah, it seems like maybe that was a big wake-up call for people, this shift where back in the day, people were growing a lot of their own food. I know my mother grew up growing a lot of her own food in a garden. She still does that now, but because she loves to. And she also doesn't trust big industry. Right. But, you know, and her parents grew up growing their own food in a garden. And so it was this shift from kind of the the farmer's markets and your local locally grown food to big mega corporations. And I think a lot of people in the beginning trusted these big corporations to be making food that was safer for you and more convenient for you. And then around this time that you're talking about, there was a big wake up call like, oh, no, they're, they're not looking out for our health. They're not right. necessarily looking out for us. Right. Well, I think the safety thing is interesting because a hundred years ago, there was an argument to be made that that you wanted food produced by big companies who could pay attention to safety. And there was a lot of tainted food then and a lot of food that was that was not what it claimed to be. But we're past that point now. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's easy to make food safe it's that we know how to do it and it doesn't take corporations to do that and as you say as you just said corporations don't have our best interests at heart when it comes to eating or when it comes to protecting the integrity of the soil or or the earth in general oh absolutely and so you started writing about this 20 years ago and it's still something that you're passionate about um have you seen any changes happening in these 20 years is it the changes you'd like to see? Not that much has changed in, in what I'd like to see. Something. Look, people are paying more attention. More people know more about food. If I say eat a good diet, I kind of don't even have to explain what that means anymore. That's different. There is some confusion about carbs and the whole paleo thing and gluten. And, and there are some fine points that People can argue about. But for the most part, if I say eat a good diet, you know I mean eat more plants, eat less junk food, eat fewer animal products. That kind of, everybody's kind of on board with that. And people who are not on board with that usually have an axe to grind. There's some money to be made by doing things in another way. So that's definitely progress. Uh, I think animal welfare, we've seen a great deal of progress. I think people's concern about how animals are treated is more more real than it used to be. There's a long, long way to go on that. People welfare, worker welfare, which you couldn't even get people to talk about 10, 15 years ago, is now talked about all the time. You know, eight of the 10 worst paying jobs in the United States are in the food sector. Restaurant workers, tipped workers, we know are maltreated, especially women and especially immigrants tons of sexual harassment in restaurants, all of this stuff, which wasn't discussed at all 20 years ago, is now common in newspapers on on websites and so on. So 
that's progress too. The remedies are are we're still waiting for for action. The remedies are still forthcoming, but but I think awareness is higher than it's ever been. Yeah. What do you envision for like where you would like the world to be? Well, it's you know it's a complicated question, and I think you can't you can't go from a to z there's a lot of intervening steps i think mm-hmm. in in labor we want more guarantees for farm workers and other food workers in terms of income in terms of scheduling in terms of benefit in terms of treatment those are all laws that can be passed on a state level even on a, a city level um we've seen minimum wage of 15 dollars in some cities and and I, you know i think that if if the political climate breaks right, we could see a national minimum wage increase that's really significant. So that's one good thing. Animal welfare, I think if we got antibiotics, the routine use of antibiotics out of the food supply, it would be more difficult to cram as many animals into as small a space as we're doing now. That would be a good thing. Um, Pesticides Mm -hmm. need to be regulated better. Clean Water and Air Acts regulations need to be enforced. I mean, those are kind of, that's not the answer, but those are kind of first steps that will allow us maybe restrictions on marketing of junk food to children. These are challenging things to make happen, but they're really small first steps. But if we can make those kinds of things happen and look at those steps and say, oh, this is moving us in the right direction, then two or three or five or 10 years from now, You and I are having this conversation and we're having it at a different starting point. The bar is higher. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting. I don't know if you saw this, what Chile is doing, that they are now putting, um, well, one, they they regulated it. So no cartoon characters and marketing. No Tony the Tiger in Chile. Yeah. And even no TV commercials, marketing. And the black label. Have you heard about the black label? Is that where if it has certain amount of sugar and salt, then they have to put a warning label? Yeah, but it's like a black, it's a stop sign, but it's not red, it's black. So it's really like, don't go there. Yeah. And they're doing the same thing in Israel. I was in Israel over the winter and they just released something similar. It's a red sticker or a green sticker on certain foods. And it actually forced certain companies to change their formulation of their food products to reduce sugar amounts. Traffic light labeling, as it's called, is pretty simple to understand. Green, yellow, red, everybody gets that. And really, you can kind of divide foods into three categories. Eat as much as you want, eat in limited quantities, stay away from. Those sort of basic fundamental rules, which even a kid can understand, that's really good stuff. And if heart disease and diabetes and certain cancers, which we know are lifestyle related, are the some of the very, very top killers of people all across the world, and we're putting these warning labels on cigarette cartons, I mean, why wouldn't we put it on our food, right? Yep. I have no comment on that. I mean, it's <laughs> what I would say. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Well, one thing that you talked about was animal rights. And you wrote a book called Vegan Before Six. Now, was that more nutrition focused or more animal rights focused? I guess I'd say it was both. I'm an omnivore, but I 
stand against factory farming. I think it's a, an atrocity. But in a way, you can argue that if people are going to eat meat at the rate that Americans eat meat, there's no other way to produce that much. There's no way to produce that much for the world to eat as much meat as Americans do anyway. But even to maintain what's being eaten now is environmentally devastating. So we have to eat less meat. And while we're doing that, we can eat better meat also. So that is part of Phoebe Six stood for vegan before six, which basically is what I would now call a two-thirds vegan philosophy or a part-time vegan philosophy, basically saying, I'm going to eat as much plant food as I possibly can, and I'm going to see meat as a treat, meat and animal products as a treat. And all the experts recommend that we cut back on meat, and whether, whether we cut back on it 10 or 20% for our own personal health reasons or 80 or 90% for environmental health reasons. It's somewhere in there. Everybody's got to make, in the long run, everybody's going to have to make adjustments. So, you know, you asked about solutions before, and this is a pie in the sky solution because it's not going to happen anytime soon. But if animals were raised, let's say, in nature, in ways that were in accordance with their own nature, meat would become much more expensive. That's okay. We can afford to eat less meat. I think we also could acknowledge that agriculture may not be, agriculture of real food may not be that profitable or may not be profitable at all. We could start to view food as a right. We could start to view food as almost a utility. That is, citizens, people who live in the United States, whether citizens or not, have a right to eat nutritious food. How do we make that happen? And a lot of that food should be plant food, and we can afford to subsidize fruits and vegetables, the growing of them and the distribution of them to everyone. It would be a net zero cost because our healthcare bills would go down by so much. So yeah. these are these are things that it's are they're a long way away, and yet that is the direction in which we need to go. Yeah, and I do think it starts with the individual because starting at the top, it, it takes a lot to move policy when there are so many dollars involved. But if all of us can vote with our dollar and where we spend it and with our voices, then I hope, it's, it's my dream that that can shift big corporations into making decisions that are good for their consumers. I would say it should be both. You can vote for your, with your dollar, but you can vote with your vote also. And if we had progressive politicians in there who were willing to take these companies on, who were willing to limit the marketing of junk for kids, who were willing to support child education on food, because until, until a four-year-old knows what real food is, then a 40-year-old isn't going to know what real... We all know, you talked a little bit before about your own issues with food, we all know how hard it is as adults to change our diets. It's really hard. That's because really we hard. learned we learned how to eat when we were two or younger. And if you're going to be weaned on Coke or you're going to be weaned on junk food, those are going to be the foods. you Talk to anyone right now who's in quarantine and everybody's saying, oh, yeah, I'm eating twice as much ice cream as I was three months ago because everybody's turning to comfort food. And for us who grew up, decades ago, 
comfort food sort of means junk food. We have to change that. Yeah. Banana bread is having a huge comeback, though. I have a really good banana bread recipe. Really good. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about recipes. <laughs> then do you, you, you wanted to make cooking easy for everybody. What are, what are some of the secrets to doing that? Well, I, it's, it's funny. If you ask me what the news is on nutrition, I say there is no news. We all know the answers. And if you ask me what the secrets are, in cooking, I'd say there are no secrets. It's just get out there and do it. And you know, in a way, cooking is um, its a little bit like driving. The first few times you do it, it's really, really hard. And then it gets easier and easier. And after some amount of time, for some people it's months and for others it's years, but after some amount of time, you can kind of do it without thinking. You might have 10 recipes you do in in rotation, or you might have even only three or four recipes that you vary from time to time, but you know what you're doing. You know how to make a stir fry. You know how to make a stew. You know how to make a soup. You know how to grill a piece of fish or meat. It's It becomes sort of second nature. And I, um, I'm not a particularly, well, I guess I shouldn't say that. I'm an adventurous cook. That is, I will try anything, but I'm not a particularly ambitious cook. I don't, say I'm going to go spend two hours in the kitchen. Sometimes it happens, but most nights it's a half an hour, 45 minutes, and and I'm done. And it's not that I'm so good at it, although I am good at it. It's that that's the style of cooking that I that I sort of adopted. Yeah. Do you have any like go-to recipes? Like one of mine is um I like to make a really simple salad dressing with just garlic that I grate on a microplane with some salt, with some olive oil, some lemon juice. If I want it to be a little bit creamier, then I'll add some tahini and maybe just kind of swizzle that up together. And I find that I can put that on just about any type of leafy green or on some veggies and I'm, I'm happy with my meal. Yeah. Do you have any secret well, I like vinaigrette also and I tend towards shallots and mustard as opposed to garlic and tahini, but same kind of thing. And I do love lemon juice and salad dressing. I mean, you you develop a sauces or combinations of things that you really like, and, and many of them are traditional. Soy sauce and sesame oil, fish oil and lime juice, chili and garlic, and so on. And you get to learn these kind of flavor combinations. You get to learn techniques of which there aren't that many, and it becomes... It really does become easy. And as I said at the beginning, I don't think cooking is for everyone. I used to think that. But um, I do think many more people would like it if they tried it. And I, for me, it's, it's, it's a lifesaver. It, especially dinner punctuates the day. I know that I'm done. I'm going to do something that has me dancing around the kitchen for a while, usually in a pretty good mood. And then I'm going to get to eat. And then it's like kind of like over. Yeah. The day is done, you know. So is that what food means to you these days? What is food in your life for you these days? I mean, the, you know, the quarantine has made things. Today was the first day I thought, God, I would really love to go out to lunch. I don't even care what it is. I would just like to go out to lunch. It's not happening. If you were to go somewhere, where would you go? I mean, I don't know. We I live in a place where there's nothing. No, but in, there's how nothing. about in New York City? <laughs> If the, well, any I have some, open, you know, I really love ABCV. I would go there mm -hmm. if it were open. 
I think normally there's been more of a routine, but since the quarantine, sometimes we cook dinner at 5.30 and sometimes we cook dinner at 7.30. It just doesn't seem like the day has a natural end, especially we're both working at home. We work early in the morning. Sometimes we work late at night. Sometimes we don't work at all in the middle of the day. So it's it just it has a, a different kind of flexibility now, which I, I kind of like, but it's also... It shows you the value of routine yeah. because I feel a little, I'm always feeling a little off. Yeah. It's not the same rhythm to life, yeah, right? It's different. It's definitely different. But I'm, I'm really enjoying having a different pace and a different rhythm rather than rushing after work to go to an event or meet friends for a drink and out and about and rush, rush, rush to have a little bit of time actually to cook. And to experiment again with recipes right. and get back into that deeper connection with food. I think for me, I like cooking because it takes up all of my attention. So I, I can't be just running my mind like crazy. I have to be there present with something on the stove so it doesn't burn and smelling that lemon juice as I'm squeezing it. And I don't know. I, I, I guess I've missed that a little bit. Yeah. I don't miss restaurants and I don't miss the social thing. And I think this has been really, to be away from the city for eight weeks, I think has been really healthy for me. And um, I, I can see that this is this is a life changing. I don't know, no one knows what's going to happen, but this, these eight weeks have been really interesting for me. And, and I think it will change the way I behave for the rest of my life, actually. Well, I'm hoping that it will change everyone's life for the the way that they behave for the rest of their lives in a, hopefully a positive way. Hopefully we can continue to reduce our carbon footprint as a society as we're doing and have a little bit more time for self-care and for home life and for cooking. And I think that, yeah, this time has been a great time to of reflection, to really yeah, reflect on sure. ourselves. Well, we like to end our conversations. Can you believe it's already been 30 minutes here together? But we like to ask all of our guests to share light work with our listeners. And so what this is, is a challenge or a practice that we you will give to our listeners to put some of what we talked about today into action. So I'd love for you to share a little bit of light work. Well, the thing that's happened since the quarantine has been this bread recipe that I did in 2006 or 2007 with a guy named Jim Leahy, which is basically called No Need Bread. Jim developed it. I was at the Times at the time. We did a video, which is still online. But I hear from five people a day who are making No Need Bread, and people call me constantly and say, oh, yeah, I had your bread, I had your bread, I made your bread. So I would, that's the recipe I would share because it works. People love it. It's life changing. Bread making is a great thing to do when you're spending time indoors anyway. It's habit forming. It's really good. I mean, you will. I remember when I said, oh, I'm making the best bread of anybody in the neighborhood. And then I was like, oh, I'm making the best bread of anybody in town. And now I say, I'm making the best bread in this county. So you can get to that point. Wait, but I'm what makes it the best? Well, now I'm doing 
hundred percent whole grain. It's usually just four or five ingredients, whole wheat that I grind myself, um, sourdough starter, yeast, sourdough starter, water and salt. Sometimes I add seeds or some soaked other grain or oats or walnuts and raisins or whatever, but that's, and I'm baking it four or five times a week. I have to give a lot of it away. Sounds delicious. But, <laughs> you can send some my way. Yeah. Okay. Well, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for all the work that you do to help spread the word about food and health and nutrition. Really appreciate it. Well, hi, Tyler. Hi. <laughs> so excited to have you on the Sakara Life podcast with us today. Thanks yeah. for joining. Yeah, so excited to, to be here with you guys. And I can't believe what it's been five years since you've been on the Sakara team. Yeah. In some ways it feels like longer in some ways, like I can't believe it's been five years already. Yeah, absolutely. Well, excited to be chatting with you today and for all of our Sakara listeners to get to know you. Yeah. Well, we like to start out by asking our guests a little bit about their own mission. What would you say your personal mission is? I would say my personal mission, I think this applies to both my personal and my work life, is to make food something that is celebrated and not feared and to foster connectivity and community through whatever I do. Usually that ends up being centered around food <laughs> find, yeah. usually finds its way back to that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? So you said to make food something celebrated and not feared. And do you think food is something that, that people do fear? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think especially for women, but men as well, um, you know, food can, there's so much misinformation about food. There's you know, I think a lot of people just don't usually understand or have an awareness around what they're putting into their body. It can be so tied to illness and not feeling good and not feeling good in your body. So I think that's where a lot of the fear stems from. And I think, you know, there's obviously like huge food scarcity around the globe. And there's also just problems with obesity in our country. So there are kind of like all these, these sides of the spectrum that, that can feed that fear. So, I mean, that's one of the things I love most about Sakara. I think a lot of what we're doing is helping to kind of break down some of that lack of knowledge and, and fear that results from it. Yeah, I know. We, we definitely get our fair share of clients writing in, as you know, asking about our calorie counts and things like that. I think partially out of fear, fear that maybe this food will make them gain weight or that there's something in there that they're looking to control and that we're trying to release them of that control, release them of that fear and really put them back into their own bodies and, and honing in on that body intelligence to let them know, okay, I'm hungry now, now I'm full. Um, and when you have that type of connection with your body and to your food, then I think some of the fear can start to dissipate in that way. Yeah. And be replaced by joy. I mean, like my best memories in life are 
around food, whether it was like a food adventure or an amazing meal. And so I think that's like the connectivity and community part. Like if, you know, it's such an amazing way to connect with people and to foster community. But yeah, I think that's such a big part of it for me as well. No, absolutely. I love that. Well, want to uh, dig in a little bit about our R&D process and how things work at Sakara. I know it can take upwards of six months for a recipe to go from a concept into actually making it onto the menu, which it's a long time and we have a lot of very um, scrutinizing criteria that it has to go through but would love for you to take us through a little bit about the pathway of a meal. Yeah. So I think it all starts with, you know, the ideation phase. So that, that can be just kicking ideas around. Oftentimes it's you guys coming to me with, you know, a a post you saw on social media or an amazing meal you had, or like I had this dressing, like this is the best dressing I've ever had. And we kind of bat it around a little bit. I'll do some research and some preliminary testing. And then we move on to the tasting phase, which you're very familiar with. Oh, yeah. Um, This is the best part of the phase. (laughs) Yeah. So we get to come up with some great, crazy ideas for what we want to eat and a vision for a meal and then send it to you and your team. And then these beautiful meals kind of appear, which is And you know, the tasting phase can sometimes be the longest part. Right. Because we could have the most amazing idea for something, but then perhaps we're not going to be able to make it at scale in the kitchen, or maybe it's not going to be able to ship through the mail to people, you know, who live in Oklahoma. And then we also have to make sure that it hits all of our nutritional pillars. And I kind of find that part, the fun part, making sure that it hits the nutritional pillars. Absolutely. I mean, I I feel like I get so much inspiration from just going back to those, those nine pillars and really thinking about, you know, how to integrate them into a dish or sometimes like one pillar can be like the starting point for me. If it's, you know, eat your water, I'm like, okay, how do I make the most hydrating dish we're rolling into summer? So I, I actually like love that we have those as kind of an anchor for our meals. Yeah. Or even really interesting superfoods can completely change the personality of a meal. And I, I love that, you know, I think we used to come up with a lot of really interesting superfoods and bring them in because each superfood has its own unique nutritional profile. A lot of them have really special medicinal benefits to them and are typically ingredients that you're not eating on a normal day. But then you've also been starting to bring in some really fun ingredients into this as well, ones that I had never even heard of before. Yeah. And I mean, same with me. That's like one of the fun parts of my job is I get to to research this stuff and discover like even more and more every day what a bounty of plant-based medicinal ingredients exist. And, you know, we pull from a lot of alternative medicine traditions, Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and naturopathy. So I kind of have those traditions to look at for influences, but Sometimes I can find those traveling. Like one 
one ingredient that comes to mind, I was in San Francisco visiting a friend and went to Rainbow Grocery in the Mission District, which is like one of the most incredible grocery stores that especially for health, health food nuts. And I came across Job's Tears, which I had never heard of. They kind of look like a more pillowy barley. And I looked them up and, you know, they're packed with plant protein and vitamin B. And I was like, we have to get these onto our menu. And that's kind of where a dish started. And then it, you know, became what it is today. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so then it goes through all of these rounds of not just tasting to make sure it tastes absolutely delicious and is fun, but it's also beautiful, right? Yeah, very important. Definitely a core part of the way we approach food, not only for nutrition reasons, but you know, we also eat with our eyes and we want our clients to feel beautiful and like they're putting something beautiful into their bodies. So that's, that's definitely a big piece of it as well. Then there's kind of the polishing stage where we have the final concept complete. We know what we want the flavor profile and kind of the visual aesthetic to be, but then we have to make sure it's tested, retested. Everything about the recipe is Loctite because when you're making one of something, it's very different from making, you know, thousands of something. And so that's where we we really kind of hone in on the R&D process and take really a scientific approach to it and then figure out how we're going to scale it at the production level. So we often do big batch testing and are liaising with the creative team at this point to start generating all our assets for our imagery that you see on, on the menu and the emails and the Instagram. So all of this stuff is is kind of in the works for a couple more months before it hits the menu and then we have to fit it into our menu you know our menu changes every week we're so different from a conventional restaurant and it's a huge challenge because we yeah, want week to feel special and balanced that's really hard for our kitchen team to be learning new recipes all the time and making different recipes in different order right yeah, it's pretty crazy actually. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think our kitchen team loves that because they're they're kept on their toes and um they're learning new techniques and new recipes all the time, but it's it's definitely not the easy way to do things. <laughs> yeah, but I I mean it's really something special for our clients to have different meals on every single week to get all of those different ingredients into your body that you're not normally getting if you're just picking up groceries from the grocery store. So it, it definitely takes some hard work, but it's worth it for sure. The way that we design our menu is nutritionally balanced. So looking at each meal on its own, but then each day and then across the week and then within a month or a certain six weeks to balance out the different ingredients and the nutrition across all of the different meals and weeks. Yeah, there's so much that goes into creating a six-week menu or, you know, Nutrition is the, one of the most important things we're optimizing for production. We have to make sure, you know, we're not putting our hardest, most labor-intensive dishes all together. 
Um, also, you know, color and ingredient diversity. Like we don't want all of our carrot focused dishes to be in one week. We right. remember when we had the mushroom meltdown, <laughs> Yeah, this is, you know, the mushroom meltdown of 2018 and yes. we very quickly learned from it. And, you know, now we're really looking granularly at all the ingredients in a, we had too in, many mushrooms. <laughs> we had too many mushrooms in one week. It was like a mushroom in every meal of every day. And we're not happy. <laughs> no, they weren't. But we learned. We and we evolved. We continue. Yeah, yeah. And the, so the you know the menu integration piece is its own kind of process. And anytime we're rolling out a new dish as well, we want it to, you know, be able to shine in its own right and feel really special, but also be seamlessly integrated into the week and well-balanced with all the other dishes. So that's definitely an important part of the process as well. Yeah, it's really amazing. And it, it never slows down it always the the pressure is always on a little bit of how are these going to perform once it's time to to make them to go right yeah all that work into it and then i mean it's it's really fun though when a new recipe goes from this ideation point through all of these different stages and then it ends up you know, at someone's door, on someone's plate, and you get to experience it. Do you watch, like to see it on Instagram and see people's responses? Yeah, of course. I mean, and I think one of the things I love most about our company is we're such a lean team. And that means we're really cross-functional and everything is super collaborative and our food feels the same way. So it's, it's kind of like a game of telephone. Like it starts here. And then through this process, all these people are feeding into it and getting their creative juices flowing. And so from like the start, it's cool to sometimes look back at my notes from what the original idea was. And then, you know, look at it on social media when it hits the menu and just like see how much it's evolved and and changed in that process. Absolutely. I think ingredient quality plays a really big role in how delicious our meals are, not just the nutrition, so can you tell us a little bit about some of the farms that we work with? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think obviously our superfoods are one of the things that distinguish us, but I think for so much of our food, the unsung heroes are just the regular, quote unquote, regular ingredients we're using that you know come from some incredible partners and farmers. Like one example that comes to mind is our mushrooms and you know don't worry we're not gonna throw a ton of mushrooms (laughs) new again but but our mushrooms are so special they come from this partner that we found in Hudson Valley called Tivoli Mushrooms and the founder Devin is a chef and avid forager and now has become a mushroom entrepreneur and was really able to set up and scale his business through his partnership with us. And we get these incredible quality organic mushrooms that he's growing, you know, just a a short drive away from New York City. We just got his first of the season oyster mushrooms last Mm. week. And, you know, he just puts so much care and thought into his process. And I think like where we have the most success in our sourcing relationships are with some of these small to medium sized farms that are 
kind of nimble and can grow with us and take like a really collaborative approach to the partnership. No, absolutely. It's almost like they're an extension of our team. You know, one day for sure. One day we'd love to have our own Saqqara farm. But until then, I really do feel like a lot of these farms that we work with are an extension of our team and our Sakara family. And we work so collaboratively with them. I remember when we took that last trip up to, to visit some of the farmers and just getting to see how much they care about the food that they're producing and how well they work with mother nature and the land to create this product. I think when you're not using heavy pesticides and chemicals to control nature, you have to actually work in tandem and collaborate with nature. You have to not work against her, but work work with her to get the product and that you're looking for. And I really saw that with the farmers that we visited. Oh my gosh. And it's such a labor of love. Like farming is not easy. So these people are doing it because they truly believe in what they're doing and, you know, are kind of trying to combat some of like the unfortunate mainstream kind of agriculture that's happened in our country that has had some really detrimental effects on our ecosystem. Yeah. And I think the energy really matters. The energy that the farmer has and the care and the love that they put into the produce and then the energy that our team in the kitchen has when they're cooking the food and all of the love that goes into the packaging and the messaging and everything, getting it to people's doors, that all of that is part of of the meal experience and how our client views and tastes the food when they receive it. Yeah. Food made with love always tastes better, no matter what. (laughs) A hundred percent. I totally agree. What would you say is one of your favorite meals, Zakara dishes? To eat or that I've made? Either. Well, I think actually two, I'll say. So I feel like the dishes I make fall into two categories. They're either rooted in like a comfort food or they're they're kind of challenging and exotic dishes that I, I where I want to kind of make our clients think a little bit and maybe go outside of the box. So for the comfort food one, I would say the wild mushroom pasta that I made on the Cara summer retreat and just kind of like whipped it up. We had some leftover mushrooms from a Saqqara dish that we took up to the retreat. And, you know, we had some truffle oil and tons of herbs and lemon juice. And it was just like the kind of thing that I would, I would cook for myself. And everyone was like, you have to put this on the menu. (laughs) It was so delicious. It And this still is one of my favorite dishes that we have on the menu. It is comforting and it feels sophisticated and beautiful and light all at the same time. It's so good. Yeah. And then, and then I think in terms of like an exotic dish, this dish is actually going to be coming up on the menu this summer. It's like a very seasonal dish. So you don't get this throughout the year, but the ultra hydration bowl And this one kind of like started as an idea and I wanted to evoke neon, like the color neon. So I really wanted it to be a dish that had a ton of contrast. So I thought of making like a graphite black dressing. It's a black tahini dressing. 
And then what are like the brightest kind of most hydrating vegetables and fruits I can think of. So it has watermelon, watermelon, radish, cucumber, like baby Persian cucumbers, star fruit. So I think not a dish that a lot of people would probably associate with comfort, but you know, something that's really different and maybe challenges them and challenges like their eye as they're eating it as well. And then we have a new one that's also going to join the menu that I'm really excited for. This one I thought was just so creative. It's the Napoleon Parfait. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So so delicious. So creative, so unique, and so nutritious. People are going to flip for this meal. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Can I give away some details? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Because this this episode might come out after it is already released onto the menu. We're okay, not sure. Perfect. So go ahead. So uh, you guys probably remember this from your childhood. Ice cream that's layered into chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. I always thought that was called Napoleon ice cream. It turns out it's called Neapolitan ice cream. So my whole life, I thought it was called something different from what it actually is. Wait, are we calling our dish Napoleon or Napoleon? Neapolitan, thanks to our our brilliant coffee team. (laughs) Okay, Neapolitan. Maybe it was in tasting we were calling it Napoleon. Yeah, that that was my fault. Okay. (laughs) So the Neapolitan parfait, and this one actually is great because it kind of falls into both categories where it was the idea came from like this childhood kind of memory. I was thinking of summer and ice cream, but then the challenging part for clients is that it's made from mostly legumes and vegetables. So it, I kid you not taste like an ice cream parfait, like it truly does, but it's made with chickpeas and cauliflower. So, you know, I think it's, it's like one of those trick people into eating their vegetables moments where, you know, it, yes, it's comforting, but it's also like challenging people a little bit to kind of go outside of the norm. Yeah. You have this great chocolatey layer that's made with chickpeas. You have this vanilla layer that's a cauliflower cream and then strawberry layer with strawberries. It is just so incredible. And it's like you're having ice cream for breakfast, except it's just plants. It's vegetables and you're getting all that good plant protein. (laughs) So amazing. I love that. It was just really creative. And I thought one of your genius moments that maybe came through quarantine, having a little (laughs) bit of slower downtime. Okay. So for all of our home cooks out there that are listening, do you have any tips? What are some of your tips for cooking at home? Oh yeah. Well, I think the things that I cannot do without in my own home kitchen and like, you know, my mom had most of them, them I'm staying with my mom right now during quarantine. But like the second I got here, I either brought them with me or ordered them is really, really good olive oil, like amazing cold pressed. I I usually have two kinds in my kitchen. I'll have like a higher end finishing olive oil and then a cooking olive oil. You don't want to use a really high quality really, really high quality finishing olive oil to saute with. You still want to use like a really good cold pressed olive oil, but I like to have both. And what do you think about avocado oil for cooking? Oh, I love avocado oil. I mean, it has a a higher burn temp too. So it's, it's great for like things like cauliflower or broccoli or a lot of the brassicas where you want really high heat and caramelization. 
So I'll, I'll use avocado oil or sometimes coconut oil if it's a dish where that flavor profile works for some high heat cooking. Okay. Cause I just got some and I'm usually, uh, my husband likes to do the sauteing portion yeah. of our cooking and I'm just trying to get him to switch over to using the avocado oil, the higher smoke point. Definitely. That's, that's a good change. It's also, it's nice in dressings. I mean, olive oil is so good in dressings, but sometimes if you want a cleaner flavor, if you're making like a creamy dressing, sometimes a really grassy olive oil can dominate the the flavor profile. So avocado oil is great for that as well. Oh, that's such a good tip. Yeah. So what else? Citrus, lemons, like I always have at least 10 lemons in my fridge. I go through so many, so many lemons. High quality salt. I like to use pink Himalayan salt for my cooking. And then I'll use like a fleur de sel or something like a Malden salt as my my finishing salt. And I mean, I think a lot of why people have don't like eating vegetables is because they're not properly seasoned when you like season vegetables properly and they're like finished with amazing olive oil and there's a good balance between acid and and salt and fat like they're the best things in the world so good salt is very important and then in terms of you know if people are trying to cook sakara at home you have to have so many greens in your fridge. Like it's just so much a part of our food. And really I think what, what like I miss when I have a period of time where I'm not eating our food, like that is what I crave. I'm like, I need greens. (laughs) I need all the greens. So I, I always have greens in my fridge. I think greens do you like, do you have any specific ones? I, I, it, I think I'm really driven by the seasons. So, you know, in the winter, I tend to go with like baby kale and spinach. I love being able to cook greens, like even just a light wilt. That's kind of what my body tells me it needs in, in colder weather. And then in the summer, like all I want is hydrating greens. So like crunchy romaine, you know, little gems, if you can find those at the farmer's market and just like beautiful mescaline heirloom mixes. I can eat those just, you know, really good greens like that from the farmer's market. I can just like eat right out of the bag. (laughs) Yeah, so good. And then I think in terms of, you know, just kind of easy Saqqara things people can do at home. I love keeping um, nori sheets and rice paper wraps at home because it's such like a clean way to use up what's in your fridge, whether you just like make, uh, you can make sushi or you can just like literally roll nori around a bunch of veggies that are in your fridge or roll a rice paper. And it's so satiating and doesn't take a lot of time. And also I think just feels like a really special thing to eat. Yeah. It feels like a, such a different meal. It might be the same ingredients that you would normally eat in a salad, but put in a different format like that. It, it feels like a completely different meal and it's fun. Totally. Can yeah. make a really good dipping sauce with it. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like the secret, so much of Sakara's secret is in the sauce. Yeah. Our dressings are really one of the, the things that differentiate us. Not very many people are going to make 10 different dressings for the week, which is what you get when you eat, eat our meals. But even just making like one really good 
base dressing, you know, most dressings hold up for seven days at least in your fridge. So, you know, if you're at home cooking and and it feels like that's one of the things holding you back from eating your veggies, like on a Sunday, if you can just make, you know, a big batch of dressing all at once and use it on different things, it can, it can take you through. Yeah. That's so great. Okay. So last little fun question for you here. If you could collaborate with any chef in the world to create a new dish for Saqqara, who would it be? Oh man. So I think first of all, I would be so excited to collaborate with a female chef. I still think women in the food world are just so underrepresented. I think one uh, one chef that I really, really look up to and have followed throughout my career is Saman Nosrat, who trained under Alice Water. And she um, her cookbook was just such a source of inspiration to me as a young cook and kind of learning the the foundations and really learning about like salt, acid, fat, heat, like how these things make good food. I also think her food is so comforting and unfussy. So it would translate really well to our meals. I think our food is needs to, to hold up and travel around the country. So it can't sometimes like it's hard to translate high-end fine dining food to our format, but I think her food would, would really just work well on our menu. And she Mm -hmm. just has wonderful energy too, as a person. Well, maybe she'll be listening and give us a ring or if anybody out there that's listening (laughs) knows her, send her our way, please. (laughs) Well, this has been so lovely. We like to end our conversation with what we call light work which is, you are familiar with light work. You do it with us. So do you have some light work for our listeners? Any type of challenge that you want them to do as a home cook or experimenting with different foods or flavors or nutrition? Find a way to incorporate greens into your cooking once a day. So whether that means throwing some spinach into a smoothie or, you know, just folding some, maybe you're roasting potatoes, but maybe like fold some kale in with those. So find a way to work greens in to your food once a day. And I think if you do that, you will feel a change like in your gut and in the way you feel in your body. And you'll also realize like how amazing greens taste and how special they make food. Yes. I love that. More (laughs) greens. Wonderful. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you today, Tyler. Thank you for all that you do, all the love that you put into making Saqqara amazing and keeping our kitchen team happy and all these meals delicious for all of our Saqqara clients out there. I think one of the special things about food is that it can mean so many different things to different people. It can be fearful. It can be joyful. It can be comforting. It can be a celebration. It can be a connection to friends, to family. It can be the end of your workday. But whatever it is, it should be delicious and it should excite the taste buds.
And I love that we were talking so much about plants today. When you start getting to know plants on a deeper level, start experimenting, trying different ones, getting to know the farmer, getting to know where they came from, it's almost like wine. When you you can taste different types of greens, the same variety of green, maybe it's spinach, but grown by different farmers will have a different taste to it. And when you get to know food on that level, then you can really start to appreciate all of the nuances beyond just how it makes you feel, but how it excites the taste buds. I love this story from Aika in California, who was a big meat eater until she tried Saqqara. And Aika says, I just love everything about this meal program. First of all, I am slash was a quote meat lover. If I dine out, I never order a salad. I don't buy a whole bunch of veggies for myself, even though I know we all need them for the nutrition balance. Well, Saqqara life has really changed me. It is amazing how I feel after each meal, full yet clean, and I never feel stuffed or heavy. I thought I didn't like veggies, but you guys really changed my taste buds. They're all amazing and delicious. I'm really, really enjoying them all. That's so incredible to hear, Aika. The more you eat this way, the more your taste buds are going to crave eating this way. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. Sakara Lights.